Thanks for tuning in to Why Life Science, a podcast produced by the BYU Life Science Museum at Brigham Young University. I'm Katie Knight. And I'm Austin Lambert. Our mission here at the Life Science Museum is to inspire wonder, understanding, and reverence for our evolving planet. So with this podcast, we are here to bring you stories and interviews about life science research and projects going on in the College of Life Sciences at BYU and in the local community. Visit our website, lsm.byu.edu, for more information and to access notes from each episode. Welcome to the Why Life Science podcast. We are grateful today to be joined by Dr. Richard Gill and two of his research assistants and students, Stau Senge, Sengi, yes. <laughs> and then also uh, Kalai Ellis. Well, let's just do quick introductions. Uh, Dr. Gill, would you like to introduce yourself and give us a brief background about your time with BYU and your research? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Richard Gill, and I'm the department chair in the Department of Biology. I've been here at BYU for nearly 15 years, and I've been conducting research throughout the desert southwest and more recently in the South Pacific. And how did you get into the South Pacific? Because that's where we're going to be focusing today. My adventures in the South Pacific actually started as a missionary in New Zealand, uh, where I spoke Samoan. For you know, decades now, I've had a strong affinity and a love for the people and the landscapes of the South Pacific. I took a sabbatical leave to New Zealand about six years ago and sort of re-immersed myself in that system. And, and a few years ago, uh, I started working on a student internship project, the, the Rheumatic Relief Project in Samoa, where I was supporting student interns as we were doing work to identify um, rheumatic heart disease in young children in Samoa. Um, my language skills and my connection to life sciences qualified me for that. But as I was sitting on the beach there one day, I'm like, wait, I'm an ecologist. This was a remarkable place. I should be doing research there. And then there were uh, a number uh, of really fortuitous events that, that led us to start researching there. The work that we've done in Hawaii was mostly connected to a collaboration with Keone Kawe, who's now the president of BYU Hawaii. And he grew up on the island of Molokai. He was doing some fish-related research there, and he invited me to, to join him. I instantly fell in love with, with the landscapes and the people uh, on the island of Molokai. And we would have chances to collaborate with um, some of the good people there. And so, so we started a collaboration there probably six or seven years ago and have been working there since. That's really cool. And then... We'll have your students introduce themselves. My name is Tavai Lausengi. Uh, everyone knows me by Stau. And I, I'm from Samoa and the island of Savai, and that's what we're, we're uh, working on. I did my undergrad in uh, Hawaii. Uh, so I graduated, like, emphasis on, in marine biology. And so right now I'm a graduate student and working with uh, Dr. Gill, I'm mostly in uh, research in Samoa sort of like looking into uh, marine protected areas in Samoa and how effective they are in, like, you know, conserving our resources. That's nice. So you get to go home when you do your research? Yes. So <laughs> Dr. Gil Bay, my had to go <laughs> That's a good way to get home. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kalai, do you want to introduce yourself? Aloha. My name is Kalai Ellis. I'm from Nu'uanu, Oahu, so Hawaii. Almost all of my grandma's side, my father's mom, 
is from Molokai. So that's sort of my connection back there. I'm a second-year master's student, and I had actually done my undergrad here at BYU, Provo. Graduated in 2020 with a degree in biodiversity and conservation. And then I had a minor in GIS, so geospatial tech. How did you get connected with Dr. Gill and his research? In my sophomore year at BYU, I narrowed it down to two labs. It was Dr. Gill's and then another professor. And I went to Dr. Gill's homepage, and I was actually sort of intimidated. So I went with the other professor. (laughs) But then things worked out, and then I applied for a study abroad that he was holding in um, 2019. And that was actually a Pacific Ecology study abroad. So I thought, perfect. I get to go to Hawaii, Samoa, New Zealand, and I get to do ecology work. Exactly what I love. So that was sort of our first connection there. And then after that study abroad ended, I sort of reached back out and I said, hey, are there any other opportunities to work in your lab? So I spent my last year as an undergrad working in his lab, doing some various GIS ecology management related projects. Things worked out magically and is a perfect blessing where I was able to continue and do a master's here with him. And so that's that's nice for you then, too. He's also paying your airfare. To yep. get home. <laughs> well, we also feed him every time we go home back to my house. <laughs> yeah. and, and one of the things to, to point out as, as they introduce themselves is just how miraculous it is that the alignment between them and their background and the projects that we're working on. One of the, the real challenges that, that we face in doing work in these communities is that they are, are rich and storied and they have deep histories. And, and part of those histories are oftentimes the Europeans coming in and exploiting the communities. And, and by having students who are from those places that go back generations, it's open doors that wouldn't exist Otherwise, as they describe the projects that they're working on, really what you see is is this miraculous confluence between family history, personal narrative, and the research projects that they're involved with. I think this cultural aspect of ecology that, that you're talking about is really interesting. So I guess to each of you, what role does your home culture play in ecology? I think first I want to mention that it's such a blessing to go back and uh, work with the people that I know. Kind of like go along with BYU, like the aim is to, you know, enter to learn and, and go forth to serve. And there's no better way than just going back and serve the people, that, like your people, like the people that you know. For Samo, so I grew up fishing with my dad and my uncle. They taught me how to read patterns in the ocean, right? And that is exactly what ecology is. And so, you know, they helped me in order to find this fish. You have, you know, to, to read this, you know, the species of corals. At the time, I didn't know the scientific name for the species of coral. I just know the Samoan name for it, you know. Right. And so it, it was uh, nice, and, and I noticed the difference. So growing up, you know, we fished within the reef, um, and there were a lot of fish, you know. And going back to Samoa, it's, it's way different. You know, people... Um, needs so they ask it, the scientific view of why the fish are declining, like fish size and also the the abundance of fish, um, and and also corals are getting um, bleached everywhere in the South Pacific as well. There are the traditional knowledge is reading patterns. When it comes to some of the questions, you need a scientific um, uh, view or experience to sort of like explain that. And help them hopefully restore the reef and, you know, the, the fish to come back to within the reef. 
And hopefully that is my role, is to provide that scientific view of how to, to help them restore the reef. Uh, because, and I, it's a joke that I always tell the people here, is when you're hungry, you go to the store to get your fish, right? In Samoa and Hawaii, you know, you have to fish. You have to get into the water to get your food. And I know the importance of, of our role is to help them, um, you know, things that, that they have questions on t- in order to understand what's going on and hopefully be able to provide uh, solutions for, you know, for management and, and stuff like that. And so are there other questions that you're seeking to answer in your research uh, on top of what's happening with the reef and, and with the fish? Yes, so in Samoa, there are these uh, village-based uh, marine protected areas. They are really very small. And, and when I say it's small, it's only like probably... 200 meters by 200 meters. So that is very small, right? Yeah. And one of the questions that they have, are, are these effective? And that's kind of like the same questions that we are asking right now. Are these um, marine protected areas effective? Uh, some of them, they said it's effective because there's more fish inside um, than, than the open ocean, right? Than um, adjacent areas of the marine protected areas. And for our job is to provide scientific method to test that. So, for example, like uh, one of the chapters uh, in my dissertation is to use the role of herbivorous fish to test that. So, herbivorous fish control um, algae growth and therefore help coral to grow. It, it has this indirect relationship with corals so that they can, can grow better in the absence of, of algae. So, we are using that concept to test it, and that's something that we can we're working on manipulating it so that we can test that and hopefully provide the result to to this uh, village community and saying these are effective or these are not. If not, what, what ways we can work with to make the MPAs or marine protected areas effective? Maybe to expand the MPA or maybe to move to another area. And that's, yeah, that's something that we're hoping to do. Yeah, that's really interesting. Are you looking at a similar question in your research in Hawaii? My research in Hawaii deals with something similar in concept, I guess. My research focuses more on looking at that ridge to reef management unit. In Hawaiian, it's called ahupua. So it extends from basically the top of a mountain peak where water and rain will first hit. You can generally follow a stream or a river that goes all the way out to the ocean and then out to the edge of the reef. But my research seeks to understand the relationship and um, the influence of cattle grazing on the landscape. Beyond cattle grazing, also just ungulates in general, sheep, goat, deer, anything. But how are these ungulates that are invasive, introduced species influencing the terrestrial landscape, thereby changing erosional fluxes and patterns, which further affect the reefs? So trying to look at the whole connection of, okay, what's happening on land? Is there a change? Is there a difference between land managed for grazing versus land unmanaged? Is there a change between even a given time period of land cover change? And then how is this all affecting the reefs directly in front of those landscapes in that watershed? So we're looking at kind of the land mm-hmm. and then how that connects to the sea. And then, style you have a more... Ocean focused, yeah, <laughs> ocean focused. Dr. Gill, do you have anything you want to add about about these two projects or other questions you might be interested in? 
Well, I think that these are both really exciting, in part because both of them are, are so strongly informed by traditional knowledge, right? That even the landscape units that, that we're, we're looking at, you know, they're derived from the approaches that Native Hawaiians have used for hundreds of years. One of the great blessings is the fact that, that in both of these research projects, our closest collaborators are folks who aren't scientists, but, but rather folks who traditionally were connected in meaningful ways to the land. And they have, have these profound insights that they have, both in the way that they view the landscapes, the way that, that they perceive change occurring because that they do have the, this long-term knowledge. And, and for them, the drive and the motivation is more than just an inquisitive approach of what are the cause and effects, but that they are the, what are the intergenerational responsibilities that we have, right? That their, their motivations are, are deeper and stronger. One of the things that I would add is, is that there's more and more of a movement in ecology research to acknowledge traditional ecological knowledge, the, the knowledge that was derived from the first peoples wherever we're working. And oftentimes, we, we tend to have this really quaint view, right, that sort of the Moana view uh, of how natives interact w- w- with the landscapes. And, and one of the things that in the, the years that I've been working both with the communities in, in Samoa, New Zealand, Hawaii, and especially with, with my two graduate students here, is just the richness that currently exists. It isn't sort of the, this is the old way, let's bring in the new way to make it better. It really is an opportunity to say, you have this way of knowing and understanding, and as Stau uh, was saying, to, to recognize the patterns that it exist patterns that you can only recognize over generations um and and that is just as rich and just as informed as the the ecological theory that we have but when you bring the two of them together you actually create a third knowledge type one that is richly informed by traditional understanding and with scientific theory that that helps us better understand both in creating questions uh, and in testing them as well and interpreting them. Yeah, I, I feel like sometimes one of the hardest parts of the scientific process is coming up with your initial questions and then developing profound hypotheses. And, and so I think, just like you're mentioning, this cultural background, being able to, to really get into that is invaluable. And so let's talk about maybe some of the initial findings that, that you've seen. Uh, Stour, have you seen that these marine protected areas are effective. What have you been been actually learning from the data and from your research? Like unfortunately, we haven't done the experiment yet. We were supposed to do it in 19, but COVID hit. We still can't get there. Um, but we did some surveys in Samoa, and then we found that there are more coral. So coral diversity and abundance are more inside these small MPAs. Than now. In saying that, we cannot conclude that they are effective uh, because it, there might be some biases in placing the MPAs in where the coral were because most of these marine protected areas were established. Yeah, so there, there might be some biases in like, you know placing the MPAs. You mentioned that coral bleaching has been a problem. Have you seen within the, the MPAs whether or not the rates of bleaching are uh, similar to outside the areas or is that included in the surveys that you did? Because there are more corals inside the marine protected areas, 
uh, more bleachings are within the marine protected areas as well. I'm working four villages, so there are four marine protected areas. So two of the areas are more, so more coral bleaching are occurring in that in that area. And it's probably because of, you know, water quality and stuff like that. And uh, what I notice is the areas that are near spring, um, like, you know, those freshwater springs. And I think it, it, because it helps with the temperature of the water and the cores are less bleached in those areas. And that is just my sort of like hypothesis at the moment to test it. If it's really, if that's really the case, then I need to design the um scientific experiment and so you're still working on that design process yes yeah and and is there been any updates on a timeline on when you might be able to actually get there and hopefully this uh this fall they said it was um the beginning of this year but then they found some cases in Samoa, so they closed down the border again. So, And one thing that I would add is that, that this is a really interesting experiment in, in that, you know, in the early 2000s, the European Union and the United Nations Development Program stepped in, and and, and it's the, the century of ocean conservation. This has been established. They recognize that, that it's one of these systems that's at threat. As outsiders, they came in and they said, we want to facilitate Samoa conserving its coastline. Uh, and, and because of the way that, that Samoa is administered, that it's at a village scale, they went from village to village and they said, here, we'll give you $10,000 or $20,000 if you set aside an area to be protected. I, I think their motivations were pure. But, but one of the things that they failed to do w- was actually get strong buy-in from the communities. So what the communities did is they took the money, they set up these protected areas. Oftentimes what they would do is they would just look along the, their near coastline and say, okay, well, we want to conserve reef. We'll place them them here. We'll put up buoys or sticks and, and set that aside as a no-take zone. They made them as small as they possibly could justify making them, um, given the amount of money that they were given, right, within the, the constraints of it. Oftentimes, they didn't communicate well, or that communication didn't percolate down through the entire village. And, and so, so one of the problems that, that we f- face is, is actually being able to collect the data that show how meaningful these protected areas are for the services that the village depends on. So Stau found that, that there was greater coral, almost certainly greater fish abundance, but the hope is that those fish will then be able to breed move out of the marine protected areas and be available to harvest. And, you know, my guess is that that, that in the, the next few years as Stahl finishes his work, what we're going to show is that the real benefits will come as these protected areas get larger, right? That, that if they set aside even more of the reef and not just the near shore reef, but, but the fringing reef, that they're going to start to see higher populations of the fish that they care about both for, for harvest and for main, maintaining the health of the reef. And so there's this idea that if we set aside a small part of the reef, it'll benefit the whole reef. Yeah, and, and, and be able to communicate in meaningful ways. And that's one of the blessings of, of having Stow and some of our, our other native Samoan collaborators working on this project is that they can 
can carry that message of the value of conservation, um, not just to the village chiefs who, who are the ones that are, are receiving the funding, uh, but all the way through the, the, the untitled men and the women's committee and, and, and have that sort of move down into the, the next generation where they don't look at this as an infringement on their ability to, to capture fish, but instead as an investment in the rest of the reef. And so, uh, Stout, when you finish your work here, what do you plan to do with the conclusions you draw, and what do you hope to do after you graduate? So the hope is to take these, like, you know, results and findings back to the to the community and sort of, like, help them manage, like, you know, what we can do to, um, what, what can we do better? Like, what can we do to sort of, like, manage conservation and stuff like that? And... The hope for me after school is to end up in the South Pacific, sort of like, you know, not only Samoa, but sort of like going from island to island and help with conservation. So, and that is the whole idea of me coming to school here is to, to go back. And it's one of the big issues in the Pacific right now. And the government, you know, are holding a lot of meetings and stuff like that, sort of to discuss solutions to, um, to the coastal areas, especially protecting these resources for local people. So the hope is to go back and maybe work for the government or a NGO and work throughout the Pacific to uh, manage conservation. That's wonderful. I mean, you mentioned it earlier, but that's the mission of, of BYU. And I think that's the exact kind of research that, that BYU is hoping to have is, is research that can then be taken back to home wherever that may be and, and really make a lasting difference. Thank you for sharing about your project in Kalai. Did I say that right? Yeah. <laughs> what have you been learning as you've done your research? Have you been able to to keep going back and, and setting up experiments? You said you're in your second year. Yeah, so I wouldn't say I have necessarily an experiment. It's a very large-scale observational study where we use drone mapping technology. So we fly drones, we mapped out an entire watershed. And then with that, we take sort of like this snapshot in time, I guess you can call it, where we have this really high spatial resolution. We're getting like two centimeter level pixels. We can effectively see, you can visually distinguish between different species of trees at that point. Um, And what we've done is we went out and in a combination of sort of rule set based algorithms and machine learning automation, we're able to divide up the land cover. So we're able to say, okay, how much is covered in shrubs, grass, bare earth, rock, all those different vegetation types. And because we also have GIS layers dividing the land between the side managed for grazing and the side unmanaged, I'm able to basically take these um, land cover classes divide them up, and then quantify it right there, almost instantly. Um, and from that, I see, you know, the side that is managed for grazing has almost, proportionally compared to the unmanaged side, is around two times to three times the amount of grass, two times to three times the amount of bare earth, and also around 80% more rock. And rock is also an important measure because it sort of indicates that there was something over it but has also been moved away. So we're seeing already that on the side managed for grazing, they have these big, big impacts on the land cover where traditionally you'd have something of a low shrub or a grass that would actually hold down the sediment, preventing it from flowing out onto the reef. But you're seeing this big increase. 
this big increase in grasses, this big increase in bare earth and rock, which all leads us to ask the question is, where is this sediment going? And this matches up with all of the observations from the community members and from our collaborators where they're saying, you know, year after year, the amount of dirt, the amount of sediment that gets washed up into the ocean and makes these big brown, nasty red plumes into the water or even just dirt, sediment on their roads. Like they have to bring in bulldozers to remove that off the road just because it's built up so much in these really sort of high pulse tropical storm events. Um, So we're still working to really match up our spatial observations to the observations of generations of years from the community members because what they're saying leads us to understand that there is something else going on. So right now it's working on how do we match those up and can we make sure like our sort of scientific methods match up with their traditional knowledge and are they both saying the same thing or is there a discrepancy between the two? And if so, where is that discrepancy coming from or how is it? And so do you do most of your work in the lab on a computer or or are you out flying the drones taking those pictures? Yeah, we have, um, I'd say probably like three really good weeks out of the year where we're in the mountains flying from, you know, like we wake up at six, we're up on the mountaintop at seven, we're flying from seven to 11 before the winds get too heavy and then we go back, charge batteries, offload. Go so to I the say, beach. Yeah, go to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> Eat food. <laughs> so we have like these really intensive weeks where it's high stress. You know, we have right. a really small window of time to collect our data. We have probably around four hours a day. And then if those four hours aren't optimal, then our day is more or less shot. Um, we can't control the weather. We can't control sun glare. We can't control clouds. There's all these conditions that we right. can't control. So we work around that. People see the pretty pictures of us in Hawaii, on the <laughs> beach, uh, flying drones. But what they don't see are the hours that I spend in the lab, just sort of sitting in a computer. You know, there's three screens with the backlit screens just sort of illuminating my face. Um, but that's most of my time, really, is yeah. sitting down, processing, um, and just working through all of these different spatial analyses. And then just trying to, like you said, match up what you're seeing on your analysis with the cultural understanding. And so assuming that you do find these variables that maybe don't match and you line everything up, what do you hope to do with with what you find? And how do you hope to then impact your home? Yeah. So our collaborators are actually really pushing for the return to a modified ahupua'a system. And, you know, for generations, people say, everything's connected from the ridge to the reef. And that's also a big topic in ecology right now where they're like, hey, you know, ridge to reef, that's a whole concept where you need to connect it together. My research, I really hope to add the sort of scientific side where I can help our collaborators as they seek to, you know, gain more funding or prove to other people and prove to a wider audience that doesn't live there day in, day out, that managing your land from the ridge to the reef is an effective management system. Prove in a way that, you know, you can take testimonies of the community members saying, oh, we've seen this increase, we've seen, you know, a decrease in sediment. And also with my research say, there is a need for this because, you know, in a two-year time period, we see this big increase or we see this change in land cover where it indicates that 
more sediment is going off into the reef, which is damaging food security, which is damaging properties. So it's always that working in tandem between traditional ecological and scientific ecological knowledge to form that third group that um, Dr. Gill was talking about, where that third group of knowledge is the one that is really compelling, is backed by generations upon generations, and is backed by really awesome science that's solid. So my hope is first to propel the work that our collaborators are doing because it's amazing and I think that's a really big stepping stone for the rest of the state of Hawaii and also for the rest of the Pacific this model that you can see me and Star both doing very similar things in approaching scientific side with observation-based knowledge combining the two and moving it forward and I think that's a huge huge thing that we both hope to impact and I think it starts just with the projects that we're doing. Right. One of the things that, that I would add is that both cases, our collaborators are actually interested in a really specific answer, right? That, that, that oftentimes uh, at the university, we say, let's work through the theory of this. But for Aina Mamona, the group that, that we're working with in Hawaii, what, what they want to know is where is the erosion coming from? What's the source of the sediment? And how can we intervene to keep the sediment on the land and not in the marine system? And so so a really practical byproduct of this is a three-dimensional model of their watershed that, that says... 85% of this um, land surface is actually really stable, but these 15% is, are places where 100% or 99% of the sediment is coming from. And so if you put in a retention pond here, if you revegetate this area, you're going to, to be able to, to stop the bulk uh, of the erosion. Um, and, and that's one thing that we can deliver to them to, to say, you know, the thing that we can contribute that you don't already have is the ability to map this at, at a really fine spatial scale. But in addition to that, what we begin to do is to then develop theory that's transferable and, and say, OK, what are the classes of vegetation or surface, the combination of slope, aspect, land cover that generate sediment and when we look at other watersheds do we still have to do these same intensive surveys or can we just step in and, and restore those so it's a, a really unique opportunity to, to actually work with a community that needs specific answers right the the village of Saipipi in Samoa wants to know is my MPA big enough and, and we should be able to come to the community and say, no, but if you made it four times this size, here's the added benefits. But also uh, simultaneously be contributing to the broader conversation of what's the effective size, minimum effective size for protected areas in South Pacific. To, to me, it's, it's a really exciting space in science where you're actually answering the needs of, of individual communities while also helping to develop theory that's transferable. So it's this, it's a specific and then also this broad application of, of the research that you're doing. Yep. And you talked about communicating with these communities. What are some of the ways that you do that? Does it just word of mouth or do you have other ways too? There's also an education uh, group of our research and we basically, we got funded for an education center uh, to place in Samoa. And so in this education uh, center, we were planning to promote not only the scientific uh, methods that we're using and the scientific knowledge, but also bringing 
traditional knowledge into into place. And I think it was 2019, we also have a group that interview the community, sort of like bringing their perspective of why the reef resources are reducing. And not only the, the women's, but also uh, the men as well in different class. Because in the village, you have chiefs, and you have untitled men, and then you have the women's, and then the kids. So we made sure that we get the opinions from all those groups so that it sort of like help us shape our understanding of how the village works. Yeah, we joke around that we just work in the morning, then go to the beach in the afternoon. But a lot of our time, we try to schedule it where we're there talking to the people. We talk with them. We share what we're finding. We have done a lot of educational outreach as well, where every time we go back, we try to meet with a small K-6 charter school. And then we just try to do simple workshops sharing, you know, this is the cool things that you can do. Here we are flying drones. This is what we're finding. This is what we're making, the maps, products. So sort of educating the next generation, right? Putting that seed in their head saying, you know, this is an option that you can pursue, that you don't have to just sort of sit and watch as a bystander or observe, but there are other ways that you can further this process of, you know, asking those scientific questions and addressing those needs. And then also just always being open to opportunities, I think is a really, really big thing for me and for what we've learned where when we went back to Molokai on one of our past trips, the president of Aina Momona, Uncle Walter Riddy, he was like, oh, hey, we have some people coming over. Would you guys be able to sit in on a meeting with us? And then you never really say no, right? <laughs> so we said, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. Like, we'll go home, we'll shower real quick, then we'll come back. And it turns out that somehow he gathered every single politician on the island and got them to all sit down in his classroom and he said, all right, Chloe, tell us what science you're doing right now. And it just came off as a, I thought it was just like a meeting with other workers of the NGO. And then as slowly, like people came in and they're all dressed really nice. And I came in wearing a board shorts and a t-shirt, my <laughs> slippers. I was like, oh, did I miss a memo or something? <laughs> but then they started introducing themselves. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm the House representative. Oh, I'm the Senate representative. And I was like, oh, these are real people that hold power, you know, decisions about this county, about this island. And everyone was from Molokai too. And I said, oh, hi, my name's Kala'i. I'm from Oahu, another island. But then eventually they just said, you know, hey, he's a master's student at BYU. He's doing work here. I want you to share what you're doing. I want you to share what's happening here. So always being open to all those opportunities, I think is a really big thing because you never know who you're going to talk to and you never know when you're going to talk to them. Well, I think we're big on that at the museum, too, is, is being able to effectively communicate science in a lot of different ways. You know, sometimes our narrative comes off as there's these villages that have deep, rich, traditional knowledge, but they aren't really connected in meaningful ways with other ways of knowing. And, and I think that that's a wrong take. I, I, oftentimes when we think about the developing world, we may have a view of of uneducated, simple, and and one of the things that that I've really come to appreciate is just how highly educated 
both the, the, the communities in Hawaii and Samoa are, especially when it comes to their understanding of the environment. And so, so one of the most important outreaches that we are, are able to do is to be connected in really meaningful ways to the government ministries that oversee the management of these systems. And one of the advantages of working in small island systems is that it, once you're connected to a few people, you are connected to the network. And so a big part of our work is trying to work with government ministries to affect change that will affect the entire islands. And so so whether it's, you know, the work that we do on Molokai is 100% relevant to work on Big Island or Kauai or Oahu and the, the Nature Conservancy and government agencies that we are connected to uh, are the ones that are going to make decisions across the entire island. And in Samoa, they've got the, these these remarkable, well-educated, thoughtful people that, that are working in government now and are, are looking for good information that intersects between the needs that they have to manage, but also with really good scientific approaches to understanding. And, and that's one of the ways that, that we hope to affect change. Well, it's exciting to hear about your research and the impact and the potential it has to to make a big difference in the world. Is there any last things that, that anyone would like to, to add? When opportunity comes your way, don't let it pass by. Like every single thing that we do is so opportunistic. It's just, it's literally a blessing, right? That's something we always come back to where everything that we have is a blessing. These moments, the alignment of NGO collaborators asking for a project, students coming up at the right time with the right skills. These opportunities are literally created for you and they're there. Even so, if you're in, in your board shorts. Even if you're in your board <laughs> shorts, slippers, feeling really awkward. Opportunities are always there. I, I just want to acknowledge the, the miracles that come from God that have facilitated this work right and and i think sometimes it's hard to say that but but i have to acknowledge the fact that all of these projects which are such a blessing to me and to the the people that that i work with came about in miraculous ways right whether it is the fact that the the very day that i'm sitting on a beach in samoa wishing that i could leverage my educational background to help these communities. I get a phone call from a colleague who who says, hey, I just found a potential graduate student for you um, here in Hawaii. What's the chance that you would have a project in Samoa? And and I say, (laughs) you know what? I think I could. Where's he from? And the village that Stau is from is about 200 meters from where I was sitting on the beach. Right. And you get a tingling in your body and you say, oh, my gosh, that this is this amazing confluence. And, and the same with with Kalei, where he's from town. He's from from Honolulu and, and which is about as far away culturally from Molokai as you can get, but still be in the state of Hawaii. But it turns out that his auntie Lee was the school teacher of the president of Aina Mamona. And we walk in, and if I'm walking in front, we get a few squints, and they're like, oh, what, what are you doing here? And then he sees Kalai, and he's like, okay. And he opens his arms and embraces us and says, here, how can we help your work, and how can you help us? And it's the hand of God in this work and the, the research that we're doing. And, and we've got to do good science, but, but at every junction, miracles have, have happened that have opened doors that allowed us to do it. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, God truly has his hand 
in all of his creations and and in the stewardship that we we seek he'll help us so well thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure to to learn about your projects all right thanks thank you thank you